910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. We're on part 10 of our 12-part series on the book of Daniel, Reading Between the Lines. And good news, the text in chapter 10 is a little bit less complex (laughs) than 9. That's right. But Chris, before we jump into the text today, I want to take a minute and talk about some. We've seen over and over in the book of Daniel, some pretty amazing visions, dreams, events. We even said the book of Daniel is an exception as usually God does the extraordinary through ordinary means. But in Daniel, he does a lot of extraordinary things outright. And God gives Daniel some really specific prophecies about far future people and events as we've seen. Yeah, and this is called predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy is defined as a prediction of present, near future, and distant future events where there is nothing known definitively about that event or even that it would occur except by God. It is also not predicting something that is known to be planned for the future. That is simply prediction, not prophecy. Now, you would expect the unbelieving world to be skeptical of this. But there's skepticism by those professing to be Christians, and it's been going on since Jesus' time. It has, but it began to get much worse once the eyewitnesses to Jesus and the apostles began to die. In fact, the book of Daniel has been a frequent target of this. Many who profess to be Christians say that the book of Daniel was not written by Daniel and is not prophecy, but instead it's all history written by a historian long after the events described actually happened. And we've said before that Daniel did write the book of Daniel. He says so. So to say that he didn't, you'd have to concede that God allowed a lie to be put into his word. And worse, that God perpetrated a lie, pretending that he's omniscient and knows everything that happens in the future, and that he's omnipotent and sovereign over everything that happens. Yeah. And you know what I just thought of? One of the very beginning chapters, there was a question about it. And then something was found later. Clay tablets were found. That's right. You know, so That's anyway, right. I forgot about that. No. Yep. And, you know, at, at that point, you might as well toss the whole Bible out. If you're going to say that, you know, God's going to put a lie in there, you might as well toss the whole Bible out and say you don't believe it. What would be the point of studying God's word if it was deceitful and had lies? Here's what one scholar wrote about believing that Daniel did write the book of Daniel and that God is omniscient and omnipotent and would have absolutely no problem prophesying about specific far future events. And they are, they do get specific. This theological conclusion will forever be unacceptable to some in that same way that some saw Lazarus raised from the dead and still refused to believe that Jesus was the Christ. In spite of indisputable evidence, the prophet will remain under attack, which assault inadvertently reminds us of the apologetic potency of the book of Daniel. That shows you that there are elect and non-elect. That's right. That's right. And we just said in the last episode that Jesus did all these miracles in front of people and they still didn't believe. Nope. And how did Judas turn on him when he was right there with them for all those years? Yep. So the point of us telling you all this is that there's some incredible supernatural things in scripture that are hard for our natural minds to grasp. And at some point, if you say you're a Christian, 
Either you believe everything in the Bible to be inerrant and to be the inspired word of God, or you don't. You know, I've known people who say they believe some things in scripture, but not all. I remember someone saying to me that the creation account in Genesis isn't a literal account. It's just a story put in there that would be easy for us to understand. But that's not actually how creation happened. And that's heresy. Genesis says that it's an account, meaning a factual retelling. Just like Daniel is part of the predictive prophecy written by Daniel hundreds of years before the events unfolded. Either you believe all of what God says in his word or you don't. And as 2 Timothy 3.15 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's a package deal. You can't pick and choose. You just can't. And when you think about how the whole Bible goes together, it's kind of dumb to see how that works and not believe it, but whatever. And I think it's going to be more important than ever that we understand everything in the Bible is true because more and Mm -hmm. more we're going to have it. We're going to have it challenged and we're going to have Mm -hmm. to stand up for it. So, yep, that's a great point. So, okay, you ready to delve into Daniel chapter 10 now? I am. Okay, so let's start by reading verse one. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So in just the first verse, there's a few things we're being told, Chris. Right. First, that this is the third year of King Cyrus. So this chapter happens two years after chapter nine. This would have been pretty close to the end of Daniel's life. This was also a significant time period because during the third year of the reign of King Cyrus, he went to Asia Minor to fight a war with the Scythians. His son, Cambyses, was left in charge and he forbade the Jewish people to continue rebuilding Jerusalem or the temple. And that plays a part in the message that Daniel receives. Right. The next thing we learn is pretty much a reinforcement of what we started out this episode saying. What is written in Daniel is true. It's predictive prophecy, and some of it's difficult to understand and difficult to accept, but it's true. However, as we also see, Daniel understood everything that was being shown to him, and that's an important point. The reason contextualization is so crucial is that while passages may seem mysterious and complex to us, and we've seen a few of them, the writer understood what he was being inspired to write. The prophets understood the prophecies they were being given. That's why we always have to first look at the passage of scripture in light of the original hearing audience. Absolutely. And another thing that we see from just the first verse is that Daniel starts out differently in this chapter. He's not received a vision given to him in a dream this time, but instead he's given a word. The literal translation of word implies that Daniel received the prophecy in words this time, not a vision. So let's continue at verses two and three. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So that's the end of the scripture. Daniel was mourning. But why was he mourning? Well, some think it's because so few exiles went back to Jerusalem with Ezra. And we see that in Ezra 2, 64 to 67. Others think it's because of the opposition Ezra was facing in trying to rebuild the temple and Jerusalem from the people of the northern kingdom of Israel who had intermarried with foreigners and became the Samaritans. And we see that in Ezra 4, 1 to 5. We should note that Daniel did not return to Jerusalem with the exiles because he was 84 
and he had a high position in the government with the Medo-Persians. He could better serve his people by staying in Babylon. But back to the reasons for Daniel's mourning. Charles Spurgeon throws another possible reason for Daniel's sorrow in the mix. He says, and I'm quoting here, I think too that Daniel's sorrow was occasioned partly by the repetition of those words to him. The vision is true, but the time appointed is long. That's the end of Spurgeon's quote. So Spurgeon believes that Daniel is sad about the timeline of the message he receives, and we will see the words he quoted appear through the text as we go on. So Daniel wasn't fasting during this period. He was just abstaining from certain foods and wines, and he wasn't using lotion. That's what it means when he said he wasn't anointing himself. He was denying himself these pleasures because, as John Calvin notes, when thus deprived of all opportunity of rebuilding their temple, what could the Jews determine except that they had been deluded after returning to their country, and God had made a shoe of disappointing expectations, which had turned out a mere laughing stock and deception. This was the cause of the grief and anxiety which oppressed the holy prophet. We now understand why he mentions the third year of Cyrus as the circumstances of that period, even at this day, point out the reason of his abstinence from all delicacies. So just to kind of reword this, Calvin is referring to the fact that Cambyses forbade the Jews to rebuild the temple. And he's saying that Daniel and perhaps others are wondering if the visions, the prophecies, and encouragements to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple was a kind of sick joke on God's part. And that shows us that even someone as faithful and as obedient to God as Daniel was can have his moments of doubt and is in the midst of the darkness. But God doesn't leave Daniel there. Daniel says in verses five through eight, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Okay, so Daniel, you were sad and disappointed. Well, how's this for proof that God is in control of things? The first question that pops in my head is, who is this man that appears? And probably the answer that pops into most of our heads is it's Jesus. But there's some differing opinions about this identity. Some definitively say it's Jesus. And the man's description is similar to the one we see of Jesus in Revelation 1, 12 to 16. And I'll just read a little bit. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. But there are others who do not think that this is Jesus, but an angel who took the form of a man to visit Daniel and deliver the prophecy. And their reasoning comes from the verses that follow in Daniel 9, verses 13 and 14, which say, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. 
But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. The theory is that Jesus would not have needed Michael's help to defeat the prince of Persia, who may not be a real person, as we're going to see. So, Chris, the angel theory makes more sense. First, whenever Jesus made an appearance in the Old Testament, called a theophany, or after his resurrection, called a Christophany, he never received, nor did he ever need, any assistance from anyone else. In fact, in Revelation in chapter 16, at the Battle of Armageddon, he completely defeats Satan and all evil by merely saying it's done. So it is kind of ludicrous to think that he would have had to call in Michael, the archangel, for help. In fact, in the book of Jude, Michael, who is the only angel that had the title of archangel, which probably means he's the most powerful angel, goes up against Satan. And as we see in Jude verse 9, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So even the most powerful of angels, Michael, deferred to God when dealing with Satan. That's why we shouldn't go That's around right. rebuking. <laughs> but getting back on to Daniel here, we'll get to this prince of Persia being a demonic being in a minute. But first, it seems strange that Daniel's companions could not see the man and they were still terrified. There's something supernatural about the appearance of this man that even though they couldn't see him, they either heard him or sensed his presence and they were terrified. This same thing happens when Paul is met on the road to Damascus by Jesus in Acts 9 verses 3 to 7. I'll read verse 7 for you. It says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And that would be a little terrifying. It would be a little terrifying. Just a little. So Daniel, who does see him, turns deathly pale and is so overwhelmed he faints. Angels reflect the image and the glory of God, so it's understandable that Daniel was overwhelmed by its appearance. Ian DeGood notes this, the angelic messengers reflect the image of the glorious God whom they serve, so to look on the angel is tantamount to viewing God himself. They seek to communicate through the vision some aspect or aspects of God's nature that will be important for the message that will follow, end quote. Yep. Daniel is called beloved by the angel. This is the second time Daniel is referred to as beloved or highly esteemed, as some say. This indicates that he is dear and precious to God. This is exactly how God feels about us if we're his children. After Daniel faints, the angel helps him to his knees and then orders him to stand up and pay attention. Daniel does, but is still shaken, understandably so. The angel tells Daniel that God responded to his prayer right away, but the angel was detained from coming to him for 21 days. This is a pretty big deal. God dispatched an angel to Daniel because of his prayer. And it's not that Daniel gets special privilege from God. He does the same for us if we belong to him. Hebrews 1.14 says this about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And Chris, this is a perfect example of why prayer is important. Although God is unchangeable, he hears our prayers and he does respond. Now, granted, it's not always by sending an angel, but he does always hear us and he does always respond. And who knows, maybe he will send an angel. So let's 
move on here and talk about this prince slash king of Persia that resisted the angel for 21 days. He's probably not the human leader of the kingdom of Persia, and he's probably not even a man. While Daniel was mourning and praying for three weeks, it appears there was a spiritual battle going on. Right. This prince is a fallen angel, one of Satan's minions. This angel that appeared to Daniel couldn't defeat him alone and needed the help of another prince, Michael, the archangel, to beat him. Scripture does talk about angels having rank. Michael is the only angel given the title archangel, so he may have been ahead of them all. Scripture also talks about fallen angels. 2 Peter 2 verse 4 says, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. And understand that being called a prince or a king in this case is not a sign of respect that this minion of Satan is referred to, is getting referred to. Paul refers to Satan as the prince of this world in Ephesians 2, 2, when he says, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Jesus too refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. And again, this isn't a title of respect. No. So who is the evil minion in Daniel 10 that the angel couldn't defeat alone? Well, Ligonier Ministries says this, I'm quoting here. Michael's opponent in Daniel 10 is clearly an enemy of God and his people, a demon with strong influence on the Persian empire. Although scripture does not refer directly to the prince of Persia as a territorial spirit, it does seem that there are angelic beings, good and evil, assigned to individual lands and kingdoms. For instance, Deuteronomy 32.8 speaks of national borders fixed according to the number of the sons of God. There are also cherubim assigned to guard the territory of Eden after the fall of Adam and Eve. We see that in Genesis 3 verse 24. John Calvin has a different take on this passage. He does believe the prince and king of Persia is a real man. And that's not a surprise since we said last time that he takes a lot of Daniel literally. He thinks it's Cambyses to be exact. Remember, Cyrus's father was the king, which would make Cambyses a prince. But while Cyrus was off fighting a war, Cambyses was ruling, which would make him a king so he could get both those titles. And here's what John Calvin says. There is some probability in this explanation because the Israelites were still under the Persian monarchy and God may have furnished some assistance to the king of Persia for the sake of his own people. But I think the angel stood in direct opposition and conflict against Cambyses to prevent him from raging more fiercely against God's people. He had promulgated a cruel edict, preventing the Jews from building their temple and manifesting complete hostility to its restoration. He would not have been satisfied with this rigorous treatment had not God restrained his cruelty by the aid and hand of the angel. So we have two very credible and solid biblical theologians having a difference of opinion of this passage. It happens sometimes, as we've seen, (laughs) scripture. Just to finish up, though, uh, through verse 14 that we read, the angel tells Daniel he's giving him a message regarding the future of the Jewish exiles and the nation of Israel. So we'll continue with verses 15 to 19. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face to the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision pains that have come upon me, 
I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Okay, twice in these verses, we see Daniel again fainting and or falling to the ground. Daniel says he's overcome with anguish because of the vision. The literal translation for the Hebrew word for anguish is writhing in pain. It's the same word used in describing labor pains as we see in Isaiah 13, verse 8, when Isaiah is prophesying about the destruction of Babylon. Pangs of anguish grip them like a woman in labor, is what the text says. The angel replies to Daniel, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. Again, these would be the same words God would say to us, and it's just a beautiful encouragement. Yeah, and I, again, I think it's one we're going to need in the future. Probably a lot of us who are listening and watching need it now. So it's exactly what Daniel needed to strengthen him. He's ready to hear the message in full now. And verses 20 to 21 finish out the chapter. Then he, meaning the angel, said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. The angel tells Daniel that even with calling in Michael, the archangel, the fighting's not over yet. This angel has to return to continue fighting with the prince of Persia and now also the prince of Greece. Again, most commentators believe that these are demons who are directing things, of course, only because God has allowed them to, in the kingdoms of Medo-Persia and after that, Greece. And again, John, Calvin, and some others believe that the angel is speaking about the human kings of Persia and Greece, Cambyses of Persia and Antiochus Epiphanes of Greece. And all that falls right into the prophecy Daniel's already received in chapters seven to nine. And as we're going to see even more, it's all related. And it's related whether these are actually earthly kings, whether it's Cambyses and Antiochus, or whether they're minions of Satan. Remember, in all of the prophecies Daniel had received, there's some element of about being an earthly king, an earthly event, an earthly person, but also alluding to something supernatural, to a supernatural evil, a supernatural leader. You know, we had the fourth beast from chapter seven. We had Antiochus and Titus being allusions to the Antichrist in chapters eight and nine. So it doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. The message Daniel receives could be about earthly kings while also pointing to the supernatural kingdom of Satan. We don't and can't know for sure, but it really doesn't matter, nor does it change how we interpret and apply the teachings in this book. Yes, and speaking of books, let's finish with the text by talking about this book of truth that the angel mentions. This book of truth is the decree or word of God. As Benson's commentary says, God's decrees are spoken of as if they are committed to writing and registered in a book. In other words, whatever God says is as good as and as permanent as being written down in a book would be. That's right. So, Chris, let's finish out the episode talking about a few takeaways. What does this passage mean for us? Jesus has already been victorious, and through him, 
We are, all his people are. Whether supernatural evil kings or corrupt, cruel, earthly kings or politicians, it doesn't matter. We don't have to fear either. It doesn't mean they can't hurt us, doesn't mean they can't try to destroy us, but they won't succeed. They can't win against us because Jesus has already been victorious on our behalf. So whatever happens in the future before Jesus comes back, we can rest in the knowledge that he's sovereign over everything and he's victorious over everything. And if we belong to him, there's nothing that we have to fear. Absolutely. As Paul tells us in Romans 8, 28 to 35, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And that's a great place to end today. Thanks for tuning in. Please remember to follow us on whatever platform you watch or listen us on. And if you like what you hear, we'd appreciate it if you left a review. And don't forget that both our books, No Half Truths Allowed, Understanding the Complete Gospel Message, and The Bible Blueprint, A Guide to Better Understanding the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, are both available on all major book outlets. Have a blessed day. 